This is C-SPAN 2 coverage from the United Nations Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. There is no question that as we take, and we must take a great deal of satisfaction, Mr. President, of what is being accomplished at this conference, but we cannot be complacent unless the agreements reached here are accompanied by real commitments to significant change. Change, of course, indeed, for the human species. In my view, Your Excellencies, we, are, we simply are headed for a, a moment in the 21st century where the condition of our species may become terminal. May become terminal. May become terminal. Since the Rio Earth Summit in 1992, where the accelerating decline of planetary systems was acknowledged and leaders expressed the need for change, Nothing has been achieved to stop the catastrophic circumstances that we are facing today. In this episode of Shaping the Future, I'm speaking with Professor Kevin Anderson about his and his colleagues' new paper to be published on the 17th of October titled Three Decades of Climate Mitigation – Why Haven't We Bent the Global Emissions Curve? In this analysis also emerges potential opportunities that could shift the locus of where we are in entrenched greed by the powerful few to a better prepared and resilient future for the majority of us. In the next episode, I'm speaking with Jakita Nanganda on her struggle to oppose oil drilling and the contamination and destruction of forests in Namibia and the struggles her family are confronting in the face of severe drought. Jakapita will be traveling to COP26 as part of Fridays for Future International to demand a brighter future for her generation. You can subscribe to Shaping the Future on all major podcast channels and YouTube. And you can also support my work via Patreon please visit GenCC for more information. Evan, it's good to see you again. Yeah, and uh, you too. I just want to start by asking you about this paper that you published recently. Um, global greenhouse gas emissions have increased by about 60% in the last three plus decades since we collectively agreed to reduce them largely via the COP process and transition to a clean economy. You and your colleagues recently published a paper that digs into the complexity around multi-decadal mitigation failure. One critical factor was the role of power to exert influence over so much of how the world is progressing. Can you talk about the role of power in influencing policy and shaping the narrative that is actually leading us to a catastrophic outcome? It wasn't just one of the outputs or one of the conclusions we drew from the paper, it was it was it came out as the strongest and and a most evident reason for for our failure. So it wasn't one of a suite. I think it was the strongest element that that stood out from all of the others. And we made the point in the paper there were multiple ways to look at these issues, but we'd looked at sort of nine different lenses of failure, if you like. Some of them you know, looking at technologies, other ones looking at psychology, other ones looking at politics and governance and so forth. And when we read all of the various inputs from the, from the different experts in the various fields, it became quite clear that there was, this, there was this element of power. And actually, you talked about the narrative there. The power was actually not in new narratives, but was almost the power, I think, was probably my interpretation would be in maintaining the same narrative. And so it's, it's what we see, at least it's how I see this all, all the time around me, it's this sort of incremental greenwash that's disturbingly, I think, a lot of academics, some senior NGOs, lots of journalists have also bought into. 
so the way we shaped it in the paper, we caught, we thought of this as, as you know, we had these three sort of power clusters, if you like. Um, and one of those was what we called the, the Davos cluster. That is the cluster that has set the current narrative. And it is so powerful at the moment. And it is, it is supported, I think, by the expert community that we're unprepared to think of new narratives, new imaginative ways to deal with the, with the climate agenda. It's, I, I think it's actually, I would say, it's beyond the ability of, the, of that particular power cluster to, to think about these issues. And therefore, we, we thought the only way forward was probably going to be through, through different structures of power. What is striking is that you identify, especially in high emitting groups, that these, what you just referred to as almost incumbent narratives, if you like, surrounding high carbon lifestyles, and they become embedded in and act actually drive the system of failure. And one, for example, is um, at the moment, we've got these narratives around reliance on future technologies like neg negative emission technologies or transforming to green growth strategies and things like that. Can you talk about how these narratives, or I think in the paper you refer to them as fantasies, infect things like educational institutions and even the COP process itself? Mm. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's a, a, a wide-ranging and challenging question. Um, so if we think about these technologies in the future, sort of carbon scrubbing, carbon sucking, whatever you want to call them, technologies to remove CO2 from the atmosphere, and indeed, I think probably some are increasing discussion about some of the other wider geoengineering technologies. What these technologies allow us to do is, if we are to live within a particular carbon budget, the framing now that comes out of the science typically on these things, it allows us effectively to not make such significant changes today. So it allows us to maintain the current narrative. So this belief in future technologies, which, which of course, some of them may end up working to a degree, and, and there are some very early pilots for some of these technologies, but in almost all of the scenarios, what they have done is they, they dominate all this, virtually all of the scenarios, and they're assumed to, to operate at a huge planetary scale. And that means we have actually shifted the burden of mitigation significantly from, from today, from this generation, to future generations. And that allows us to, to maintain that current narrative. And it's not that it's just actually just the technologies which are, which are key to this, but of course, how is it we drive the shift towards the technologies is the, is the process of using price mechanisms. So it all fits into the, into the current narrative that price is the great dominant factor that that's the policy agenda. It's nothing about greater set levels of intervention. It's nothing about issues of equity and fairness. It's nothing about changing social norms. It's just, we're just gonna add a price dimension to the current system. Um, that allows the narrative to continue and future generations will be able to deploy at huge scale these technologies to solve the problems that we couldn't be bothered to change today. But what is, I think, devastating about this is how come in just a handful of years, this way of thinking has completely colored much of the NGO community and pretty much widely spread across the academic community. And it's, it's been normalized also by the journalistic community. So in the realm I work in, in academia, virtually all of the scenarios that we assume and develop now seem to almost use the language of, of negative emissions or carbon dioxide removal as if these things existed. By using the language repeatedly, day after day after day, we have almost made them material as if they are real. They are just words of things that might occur in the future, but we assume that you can already go and buy them off the shelves and you can put them into your scenarios, which means then when we talk about what are the mitigations and efforts we need to make, we've already 
weakened that line of questioning. To me, this is, this is so widespread, so ubiquitous, that we're now unable, at the moment, we appear unable to come up with alternative narratives in, from within the academic community, particularly the senior academics, who are locked into the existing narrative as well. So we are part, and this is what we try to say in the, in the, in the paper, we have enabled the current, the current norms, enabled the, the inability to think of new narratives. We have fed into that process of maintaining the status quo. I think there are some early signs that perhaps some of the younger, earlier career academics and a few others perhaps occasionally uh, are seeing beyond this and seeing that the, the real drawbacks of this particular process. Um, but, but at the moment, I think we have been very much an academic community party to this failure of imagination. One of the things you highlight in the paper is that this, this kind of narrative has a reproductive power in as much as it, it reproduces itself and gets more and in, more ingrained. And the fact that it's a fantasy represents an ongoing and even greater danger as we, as we work within a sort of limited time to get our act in order, if you like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is playing out like that. Almost that every day we fail on mitigation. Of course, we are failing every single day. Our missions are, are either staying static or going up. Um, but we have a limited carbon budget. So every day the challenge gets, gets greater and greater and greater. And our way of dealing with that is literally to ramp up and replicate. But it's not just replicating, it's ramping up the levels of these sorts of technologies well into the future. So that again allows us, despite the fact that the challenge gets harder every day, it allows us to continue with the same narrative. So the replication, but it is more than that. So it's the replication and acceleration of these technologies, you know, these proposed technologies for the future allows us to maintain the existing narrative. Okay. During a session at COP24, you said that you thought it 95% probable that we would end up at something like a plus four degrees situation with a 5% chance of staying anywhere below two degrees C. But you stress that this is a choice and that we're literally choosing to fail. As we approach COP26 with so much hype and fanfare, have those odds changed? And regardless of the outcome of COP26, what are the pragmatic steps we can collectively take to choose not to fail? Mm. Well, first, I, I don't want to make any grand claim about those probabilities. Those weren't, they don't come out directly out of the science. That's my impression, my interpretation of being someone who's of someone who's worked in this area for a very long time principally on mitigation, but with a pretty sound understanding of the science behind that. And so it's my view when I look at what is happening around me and how we have um, downplayed the severity of the challenge that we're face and then facing, and now that we're increasingly developing these, these narratives of future change to avoid the mitigation today. So when I look at that, it's that my, my judgment is that the direction of travel is that we, are, we have very little chance of staying below three to four degrees centigrade of warming across the century, and then maybe more after that. Do I think that's changed? There are two elements to that. First, the science, as science always does, good science always does, it evolves. And if you look, since I said that back then, and look where we are today, according to the best science we have, actually we can put a bit more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere for any given temperature level. That's what the science is telling us. Now, there are a lot of uncertainties around that and the science points that out. There are, there are lots of feedbacks that aren't 
fully embedded within the models, but there's a recognition they could have a big impact. So we have to be quite lucky on the feedbacks. But if we are lucky on the feedbacks, the standard science tells us we have a bit more emission space. You know, I think we have to be very careful not to overplay that's the certainty in that. I think still there's a risk of us thinking, oh, okay, it gives us a little bit more space, that's helpful. But basing it on the latest carbon budget analysis that we have from the uh, AR6, the assessment report six from the IPCC, and given the fact is that since I, since I said this previously, we've actually dumped a lot more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, something like 40 billion tonnes a year in total, you know, 36, 37 from, from fossil fuel use principally. Um, and then when you look at the announcements that are coming out of Biden, out of the UK, out of the EU, out of the high emitting countries around the world, out of China, then I'm left with thinking, yeah, we're still going to hell in a handcart. There's lots more rhetoric, but the physics doesn't respond to rhetoric. The physics responds to action. It doesn't respond to eloquent speeches, accountancy scams, legal niceties. All of that is just nonsense. It only responds to the brutal physics, if you like, to the carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases we dump in the atmosphere. And I see no evidence that we're going to significantly change that in the near term. The 5%, the choice, I still think is there. We could change that. I mean, I think we're... Uh, I think it's incredibly unlikely we're about to stay away from 1.5 degrees centigrade of warming. Maybe we can come back to it at some point in the future if we go above it, but that's, that that's, comes with a significant risk. How do we mobilize? How do you realize that small chance of success? I mean, the impression I get, and really this came out, I think, partly out of the paper as well, is reinforced that view to, to a degree, is we cannot rely on the great and good. We can't rely on the established institutions to do that. Um, we're going to rely on at least change the narrative, at least being changed or opened up the space for new narratives from a wider constituency of people to get involved in the debate. And actually there, there is a little bit of hope in my view. In the last two stroke three years, the debate, the tenor of the debate has changed. And it has changed not because of the great and good, not because of the Mark Carnes and carbon pricing or offsetting, not because of the great good in the academic community or the Davos set, it's changed because of a, a gaggle of different forms of civil society, whether it's youth movements catalyzed by young Swedish climate activists, whether it's the, the, the messy processes of Extinction Rebellion and lots of other people getting involved in, in local meetings, in towns, in churches, in pubs, wherever it might be. And I think this messy coalescence of these groups has meant that it has opened up space for different narratives and that actually has given space to young particularly to younger academic colleagues to start to think about these things differently and to me if and this is really what I would say came out of the paper was that if we can get these civil society groups with their various opening up of, of space for new narratives to come together with what we called in the paper the enabler group which is the expert community so the expert community currently just reinforces Davos. But if actually if that expert community, and I think it will be led probably more by the earlier early career experts than the more established ones, if that community can come together with some of the space and the voices that are coming out of civil society, I think there is scope for rethinking what a progressive future might look like. I and mean, of course, that would vary very much from culture to culture. But I think I think that 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 that's that potential change in opening up of debate is there now that it wasn't there just a few years ago do you think that split in the um, expert class or 
cluster has already started in any way. Yeah, I think it started without. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm well, as I, as someone who who spends my life residing in that expert class, I suppose. Um, I've seen it around me. It has still got to go a long way. And of course, the real strength of the status quo is it's remarkably good at maintaining itself. And so, uh, you know, universities, for instance, and indeed as our consultants and companies um, and NGOs, we're, we're, we're often typically embedded in a, in a really deep hierarchical um, framework. And our funding comes from supporting the status quo, not from questioning the status quo. And so if you want to get funding, if you want to do well, if you want your gongs and so forth, then you know, your, your, you know, your rewards, your knighthoods, your MBs, your CBs, all those things, then what you need to do is, is find some way to support the status quo. And that is, of course, very alluring to lots of people in the expert community. Um, to step outside of that and to question the paradigm, to question the status quo, and to actually to point out from our own analysis, it can no longer be aligned with the commitments that we have made, puts you, in a, it, it, you, know, puts you at opposition with that with those that alluring prestige and is this what you you refer to in the paper as the political reckoning that is needed to avert and i know this is you and colleagues this paper so i'm not attributing that directly to you but as you there's a mention of a political reckoning that is needed to avert the worst crisis and impose strict limits on emissions how do we uh, how do we see a political reckoning emerge I, I think there are few who would at least acknowledge that something needs to change in politics yeah i mean we are stepping quite a long way outside my expertise now <laughs> as to how that reckoning would would come about but all i can say is that in the context that, of the paper maybe in the context of the paper i mean i think it does come about by some sort of alliance between and that will be a you know a, a messy probably quite informal alliance between what we call the enabler class, if you like, the expert community who do the analysis yeah. um, and, and the space that's been opened up by civil society. And I, my, my take on that is that actually this is where most people in the world live in this particular, these particular groups, if you like. There's not many people live in the Davos cluster. And actually, if you look at it, although it appears like there's lots of them, there aren't that many people that have, that, have their, their fingers on the, on the levers of power, if you like. Um, and if the much larger majority constituency which I say is a messy constituency. It's not sort of neatly well organized, but, but nevertheless, I think it has some sort of common traits. If that community works with the expert community, I think there is real scope for rapidly, and it, I say it could be rapid, rapidly pushing a shift in the political agenda. Now, am I saying this is likely? I don't really want to ascribe probabilities to it. I think it's a mechanism, it's a, it's a route that could, that could deliver significant change. And there will be huge opposition to it by the powerful groups with the vested interests who, who want to sort of, you know, basically just greenwashing the status quo. But I don't think that they can resist the, the power that the majority could have um, in driving forward what I'd like to think, perhaps to borrow some of the language from some of the, say, some of the, Czech, some of the changes in Czechoslovakia after the, coming down the war, the Velvet Revolution. So hopefully something that's much more you know, peaceful rather than chaotic and and disastrous, but actually something that does move move us rapidly to a more progressive view of the future. From the lock-in that you've just highlighted, not lock-in, but it's it's the ninety five percent sort of direction of which we're headed. And um, how do you see the role of adaptation, which from mm. a lot of perspectives seems to have been radically underplayed in the last few decades? And that when we do see, um, when we are tested by 
um, weather extremes, we don't appear to have any kind of readiness for the current situation, let alone two degrees, three degrees. Mm. What do you think of the role of adaptation now, how we should be thinking about it? Adaptation and mitigation have always been two sides of the same coin, but unfortunately we've separated them out and you know, adaptation has been the elephant in the corner of the room really. And it needs much more emphasis, not only emphasis in delivering on adaptation, but in thinking about adaptation to higher temperatures, it hopefully will, will open up at least some concern about the idea we need to increase our mitigation because some of the futures that could come out of us failing, continuing to fail on mitigation look pretty dire. And they're not just dire for the poorer parts of the world. Some of the poorer parts of the world have actually found ways, at least reasonably well, to adapt to the extreme weather events that they're suffering from. Now, that's not to say that they aren't or still being impacted by them severely. Of course, they are. But I think if you played out some of those events in, in some of those sort of wealthier, more stable parts of the world, climatically, if they, they were hit by these sorts of events, it would be an utter disaster for us. So I think some parts of the world have actually developed resilience and they're probably often the, you know, some of the poor communities that are regularly hit by extreme weather events. The problem is we're not at that normal. We're heading towards new normals, not just one new normal, but we're, we're progressing through increasingly severe and extreme weather events that are just going to get probably increase in severity and likely an increase in frequency for some of the work that's been done now. So even those countries that have learned to, to, to live with extreme weather, I think are going to really struggle. So we are, adaptation is absolutely key. And many years ago, I'm talking about 10, 15 years ago, I took the view then, and I do now, that we should aim for two degrees centigrade, let's say aim for 1.5, but we should um, plan for something like four degrees centigrade of warming. So look at our infrastructures, look at our, our societies more generally and say, well, how would we make those viable? How could we make those viable for a four degree C future? And that can be really sort of prosaic mundane things like looking at our sewage systems, our water systems, the built environment where we live. You know, it's, it's those sort of infrastructural issues that become really, really important. If we develop them, particularly I think some of the poor parts of the world that are actually developing those infrastructures now, if they develop them for the impacts of one and a half to two degrees centigrade of warming, that fine, they'll be okay and you know, up until 2050. And then as temperatures keep going up beyond those sorts of levels, if we don't seriously mitigate, then those infrastructures will no longer be appropriate. And actually those countries, those societies, those cities will be maladapted. And so actually can make the situation much, much worse for them because they will have got used to clean water and sewage systems that suddenly are no longer appropriate because we've had too much sea level rise because we didn't mitigate. or We've had increased drought conditions or whatever it might be. And so I think we have to be really careful here to ensure that when we do adapt, we're not adapting to just one and a half to two degrees centigrade. We're building that resilience for what, what happens if we head to three or four degrees, because that's looking much, much more likely. And let's just make clear that three or four degrees centigrade are the global averages. So we'd have to make some assessment as to what that means to the particular areas where you're going to adapt. Because unlike mitigation, which has a cultural element to it. But basically, if you reduce CO2 emissions anywhere in the world, that's, you know, the, the benefits are felt everywhere. But adaptation is not like that. Adaptation is very geographically specific and culturally specific. So there is no sort of generic form of adaptation that we all necessarily benefit from. So we have to you know, ensure that adaptation is specific and developed and tailored to the particular communities where we need to put adaptation into place, which is a very different, I think, different framing from the mitigation agenda. In the discussion section of the paper, there is a quote I would like to read and ask you to expand on as a way of summing up this interview. While a politics of urgency and equity is required to rapidly bend the global emissions curve, climate change and the broader ecological crisis 
more profoundly call for a politics of humility, where we resituate ourselves as participants in a larger living system, rather than as abstract from it. Can you talk mm. about that and, and what is meant? Yeah, by that? Um, actually, I think that's particularly pertinent now from a UK perspective, because in the UK, there's this um, bill that has been developed, the Climate and Ecological Emergency Bill. And what I like about that bill is it, it sees climate as part of a suite of other um, ecological crises that we're, that we're going through. And that's what we're touching on here, that, 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 that we are part of a more than human world and that we've spent years, decades, centuries, abstracting ourselves from nature, which of course we cannot do. And you, know, you can sort of see you know, nature red in tooth and claw, the idea that we have some sort of control over you know, and nature is there instrumental to our benefit. And yet I think that as we've learned more, particularly throughout the 20th century, that actually we, the, the, the world is made up of systems of which we are part of a system. As we've got a better understanding of ecology, I think we've had to move away from that more reductionist approach that we can separate ourselves from nature and saying again, that we need to see ourselves as part of nature. And that's what we're trying to get at here. We can't just solve the climate crisis. That that in itself will 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 not will not overcome these broader range of ecological crises. So we have to see these things as a almost like they're all these ecological crises of which climate is one are symptoms of a much sort of wider malaise that we're that we're um, suffering. Um, and and I think if we don't recognise that, if we think we can literally just find a way out of our current climate challenges just through sort of technocratic means we were locked in ongoing ecological crises and so we, we have to have that humility of stepping back and seeing ourselves as part of the system rather than dominant over the system you know ultimately you know nature and physics will win out every time unless we realize we're part of it yeah, um, yeah. and i think the common framing that has dominated almost philosophical thought as well, I think, you know, this idea of, sort of these, this narrow form of economics that we've, that we've developed, particularly in the wealthier parts of the world over the last 20, 30, 40 years, it probably wasn't there to the same, anywhere near the same degree before. I think it's completely at odds with this wider understanding of, of us as part of an ecological system. And that's something that seems to be coming out a lot more in the discourse, this idea of degrowth, um, moving away from growth, and how growth is actually the driver of ecological destruction, which yeah. undermines a lot of... Yeah, but I think we have to be very careful in the language there. It's growth measured of a particular thing, and not even a real thing that exists. It's an imaginary thing yeah. called you know, economic growth in gross domestic product. We can have growth in female literacy. We can have improvement in river quality, reductions in crime. These are all growth in the sense that they're better things. So let's, let's look at the things that make society good and let's improve those, regardless of what some abstract measure uh, of, of economics carried out by a group of, well, what I refer to as astrologists, um, you know, have estimated. I think we need post-growth. We need to move beyond that, that collecting of society into one simple metric. All of society can be, can be captured in pounds, yen, dollars, euros, whatever it might be. That's ridiculous. We, the world is much more heterodox than that. And I think to, we need to recognize that and look, look for what is good in society and let's improve those things, regardless of some bizarre um, single economic measure. Well, I think that's a, a good place to finish. So thank you very much for taking the time to speak. It's been a pleasure as always. 
all the nations of the world, great and small, rich and poor, developed and developing, have come to the end of a new beginning. The answered process has run its course. Speeches and statements have been made. The time for words has now passed. We have been exhorted by many a statement that the process after the conference is no less important than the conference itself, than the conference itself, than the conference itself. Thanks again for listening. If you are interested to help support this series and help expand the discussion around climate topics, then please do consider backing my channel via Patreon. It will help me produce more content and you will also gain access to more expert interviews. It would be great to engage more with audiences too and understand your views on these topics. Thank you.